Issues of uh, justice, issues of justice are never too far away, are they? Whether it's things like office politics, or the kind of relationship up and downs, uh, the news as well, uh, that is littered with stories about justice. Someone feeling unfairly treated, or someone demanding justice in a particular situation. I mean, you might have seen on the news uh, the terrible events at uh, the football match. I'm sorry, it's a football illustration. You just have to work with me on this one. But uh, Manchester United Liverpool, they played, and some terrible things happened in the crowd. You know, chairs were thrown, punches were thrown. The interesting thing is, what kind of justice do you think ought to be applied to both the individuals and those two clubs? Do you think they deserve to be punished in any way? Now, a retributive justice, we might say, a punishment for the crime that they have committed. That's what, uh, famously, if you're a literary kind of person, I'm not, but I've read a little bit, Dostoevsky's book, uh, he said that um, in Crime and Punishment, a very famous book, he said that's the only form of justice that could, be, uh, could happen. It's the only right and fair form of justice. It was a very popular notion of the time, much more popular than it is today. We haven't fully dismissed the idea that crime deserves punishment, but we are erring towards uh, the understanding that, cri- that crime requires not just punishment, but a rehabilitation seems to be the major focus today. But I ask you, what kind of justice do you want? What kind of justice do you expect as well? Because we need to be consistent at least, don't we? Often today, retributive justice, punishment for a crime committed, has been slightly pushed to one side to be replaced by its more liberal brother, restorative justice. But I want to ask, is that modern ideal kind of livable? If someone were to harm you or kill a loved one that you knew, what would you want for the one, the perpetrator? Maybe just a a couple of classes to counsel them and help them along the way uh, and bring them back into society. Is that what you want? Is that really justice? To be restored, of course, to be rehabilitated in society is a really important thing. But we desire true justice. We actually desire the injustice to be punished. It used to be understood that justice functions primarily in that way, to punish the lawbreaker. But, to na- but now that seems barbaric to many. But you see, how you view justice, what you expect of justice, will affect a whole bunch of things in your life. For example, if you are a parent, how you parent your children. You know, it would, particularly in how you discipline them. Uh, how you vote, for, for example, as well, because different political parties will tend towards either more retributive justice policies or more restorative justice policies. Even how you watch the news, how you look at the events as you see on your TV, you know, you'll react to different injustices differently depending on what view of justice you have. But most importantly, how you view and understand justice will also affect how you view God. It's a very big question. Is justice, need it be retributive? A punishment needs to be uh, given to someone who commits a crime. This is such an important question to have straight in our minds when we approach especially books like this, Zephaniah. Because essentially what we're going to see today is the application of God's justice. 
And so if you adhere to the notion that justice is to be applied just in a restorative way, you'll no doubt read these words or heard them read and you'll go, it's shocking. In fact, you might find it so hard to stomach that you're quite repulsed by it. Because there's very little rehabilitation here. But if you understand that uh, there is a necessity for crimes to be punished, oh, let's be honest, this is still hard. But try to begin to understand that the scale of the justice applied must be placed alongside the scale of the one to whom the crime has been committed against. This section of Zephaniah is an application of God's justice. And before we, if you like, delve into the applications of the justice, let's firstly see, and it's on your outlines there, in the passage that God's justice is universal, that it goes to all. Numerous times last week, God in his love and his mercy reminded his people that he is the creator and he is the judge. And therefore, one day we will all have to give an account, even his people, who they thought could get away with it. We'll all have to give an account for our lives before him. There's a day coming, the day of the Lord, when God's right judgment will be made fully known. And that day came to some degree in chapter 1 to his people. But the surprise of chapter 1 was that judgment had come on those who would call themselves. You know, they'd be kind of churchgoers. I'm one of God's people, you know, ethnically in that kind of group. And now what we see in chapter 2 is the range of God's judgment is extended to all the nations. Previously, they were actually the vehicles of God's judgment, but now they're the recipients in chapter 2. God begins by declaring, cast your eyes down, you'll see in, the, in those early verses, it begins by his judgment coming on the people of Philistia, or the Philistines as we might know them. Now, Philistia was a small collection of city-states. Now, remember this. They're west of Judah, okay? Go down to verses 8 to 10. You'll see Moab and Ammon there. They now face God's judgment. These were small countries to the east, independent of Judah, but historically and ethnically linked to Judah. Now, go down to verse 12, and you'll see there you have the place of Cush, that's modern-day Ethiopia, Sudan, that area. Or it could include the whole of Egypt as well, because Cush once ruled the Egyptian Empire. So it's a large area to the south. Now they come under God's judgment. And to the end, we see verse 13 to 15, Assyria. The great northern superpower that invaded Israel. They, even they, even they can't avoid God's judgment. So do you see what's going on here? North, south, east, west. Small collections of city-states. Huge superpowers, south and north. Politically related nations like Moab and Ammon and nations that had no ethnic relation to Judah at all. The point is no one escapes. Not one. God's justice and his judgment are utterly universal. Whatever the nation however big or small, whatever their GDP, whether they know God or not, whether they've even heard of God or not, God will judge them and no one will escape. 
Now, I know we're all thinking it. I'm sure we are. What about the person who has never heard of God? Isn't that totally unfair? Uh, I want us to think about the situation on the ground then and now before we approach that question. Let me think uh, and describe really what was going on uh, in these times. You have uh, the days of Zephaniah. uh, All of those nations mentioned had their own gods of their own making, their own deities. You might describe that as a polytheistic culture, a poly, many, uh, many gods culture. Looking back, as I mentioned before, chapter one is not a surprise because the Lord God there of the Bible is, is judging his own people. They turned their backs on him. They, they'd entered into a covenant with him. He kept his promises. They'd not kept theirs. And so you can understand chapter 1 to a degree, can't you? You say, well, you know, they knew what was coming. They knew the consequences. They deserved whatever was coming to them. But now in chapter 2, the stakes are raised. Zephaniah proclaims that the Lord will also judge these other nations. In fact, all nations. Whatever gods they followed, however devout they were. Now, you've got to understand that what is being... declared here by God through Zephaniah, was about as popular then as it would be now. It seems quite unfair at first glance, doesn't it? Now, we live in a polytheistic, many gods culture. But the added to that, we also live in a pluralistic culture. We are polytheistic because we turn as, you know, many people will follow Islam, some Buddhists and some secularists and so on. But we also live in this pluralistic culture, that is, we have an understanding that there is no one true universal truth. So people look at a chapter like this and they say, this is utterly offensive. Because one God, the God of the Bible, is claiming to be the truth beyond all other truths. Our pluralistic culture would also say, the so-called tolerant culture, they would also say, you know, well, your truth is truth for you, and the Buddhist truth is truth for them, and the Islam is true for those, but, uh, for, for Muslims. And how dare you? How dare you declare and be so arrogant and bigoted? The thought of a truth of truth, a universal truth, that's over and above any other truth. There's no tolerance for that kind of claim, is there? But that is why, if you ever thought about it, that's why Eastern religions, for example, Buddhism and so on, are very popular in our kind of cultures because they're very inclusive, aren't they? They say, you believe that, that's fine with you. That's your way to God and and we'll believe this. This is our way to God and so on. They're very inclusive. Whereas the Christian gospel seems to promote an exclusivity, doesn't it? There's one God. There's one way to God. And that can be perceived as arrogant and bigoted all too easily. The problem we have, my friends, is that we can't get around this. What do we do? Do we rip Zephaniah out of the Bible and pretty much most of the Bible out of the Bible? Do we ignore it as an inconvenient truth? No, God is declaring here to the world, loud and clear, that he is universally Lord. King over all nations. He's the creator. He's the Lord. And he's demonstrated his lordship throughout history in many, many ways. Supremely through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he is creator and Lord, 
he will one day bring the world to account at judgment. God's just judgment is, is universal, it is fair, it is right, and no one will ever complain. But what of the person who has never, who has never heard of God, who has never heard mention of Jesus, his son? Well, there's no easy answer here. All we can observe from the passage here is that God's justice and his judgment are universal. And therefore no one will escape. I think the question that we need to think is, how are we going to respond to that truth, that unavoidable truth? If we were to go back 150, 200 years or so, the church in this country and in America as well were sending out missionaries in their thousands. Literally their thousands. That is, they took their responsibility really seriously. They knew the just judgment of God. They knew the universal just judgment of God. They weren't embarrassed by it. They didn't rip it out of their Bibles as an inconvenient truth. Rather, they were transformed by it, though. They were salty, lighty people, as we've been looking at in, a, in the Sermon on the Mount. They had a heart for those who did not know God, who would face his universal and just judgment. And so they prayed. And they prayed. And then they prayed. And they got up early, really early, like scarily early, some of them, to pray. Even more. And they took every opportunity to make Christ known. They lived more simple lives, really simple lives, some of them, so they could support thousands of missionaries to go out and make the gospel known in this country and the world over. I wonder if you ever thought about this. If a person in this area has never heard about the Christian gospel, have you ever thought who's responsible? Are you going to blame God and say his judgment doesn't seem fair? Or are you going to be responsible and do what you can to lovingly warn them? God's justice is universal. But given that, how will God's justice be applied? First uh, uh, option is that God's justice punishes the wicked. I do promise you it gets a, bit, a little lighter as we go through the end, so don't, don't panic too much. We'll get there. But point one, God's justice punishes the wicked. Again, this is hard, but it is the unavoidable truth here in God's word. God's justice punishes people for the wrong that they have done. That is, it is retributive. Look down at verse 8 to 10 to begin with, if you can, uh, and we see there the people um, who face of Moab and Ammon, who face God's justice. They've insulted God's people, we see in verse 8. Uh, they, God's people there are the people who are directly linked to God himself through the covenant that they've established together. And therefore, if you dishonour God's people, you dishonour God. That's what they've done. Look at verse 9. Here's the justice. They'll be reduced to weeds and salt pits, simply starved is the word there, as their land becomes a wasteland. Verse 10, God explains. He explains that the justice of verse 9 is retributive. Look at it. 
It is in return for who they are and what they have done. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. It's in return for who they are and what they've done. Now, you need to remember that the nations of Moab and Ammon, they're ethnically related to the people of God. They're descendants from Lot and his two daughters who were escaped by God's mercy, Sodom and Gomorrah, back in Genesis. But despite God's mercy back then, relations between Israel and its neighbours, Moab and Ammon, have been, well, pretty rocky ever since. You might remember it's that the people of God are coming out of Egypt back in the Exodus. Uh, they asked for safe passage through Moab, didn't they? And what did they get? No. No chance. In fact, it got even worse. They appointed Balaam, didn't they? Uh, to sort of bring curses upon the people. You might even remember, as we were looking at in 1 Samuel, uh, just a few months ago, Again, Moab was a nation that was incredibly awkward and difficult and attacking and threatening God's people. 2 Samuel 10, likewise as well. So you see, despite the family line, despite the family link, God's people faced hostility. The point here is though, enough is enough. Justice will come. It's a similar story with the Philistines, if you look down at them. Once again, we remember back, I'm sure, in 1 Samuel, the Philistines were probably the the biggest people group there who were attacking God's people again and again and again. You remember Goliath, I'm sure. But enough is enough. Justice, retributive justice, was coming under the fair hand of God's judgment. But I don't know if you spotted, it's, it's not only the aggression, it's not only the kind of creeping into the land, trying to take the land and dishonouring God. Look what, it, look what really the justice comes for. Look at verse 10, for example. This is what they get in return for what? It's the pride. It's their pride that leads to the aggression, to their threats and so on. Likewise, if you turn down to verse 15, it's the same with the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. Uh, so arrogant were the people of Nineveh in their strength and wealth. They literally saw walking around going, I've got not a care in the world. I'm my own God, essentially. I live as I please. They thought no one could touch them, and in their arrogance, they actually begin speaking words that belong to God alone. And you can see those in Isaiah 45. Look at this. She said to herself, verse 15, I am the one and there is none besides me. Words that God uses of himself. And for this arrogance, God will punish. There's not restorative justice here. This is clearly and unashamedly retributive justice. This is punishment that fits the crime. The same justice that in history came to these nations. And let's be clear, it did come. None of these empires exist any longer. That same justice, likewise, will come to the arrogant before God. The one who mocks God, whether that's simply ignoring God and thinking, I am the one and there's no one like. Or the one who mocks God and his people. I think God is being really clear here, really simple. So please be warned, because one day God will say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Paul said similarly, I don't know if you remember Romans 2, for example, verses 5 and 6. Let me read those to you. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. It's a little aside, but I hope it's helpful, because I don't think... We can think this is slightly, oh, this is just one book, and Andy's kind of turned to it because he wants to teach about judgment. Uh, who's the one who teaches most about judgment in the Bible in the most concentrated form? It's Jesus. It's non-stop. The warnings are there again and again and again. This isn't an isolated teaching, or you know, I've turned to Paul and he, he just, he, he likes kind of letting it go, you know, or, you know, a, a prophet. No, Jesus does. Again and again and again, in love. He warns. Please don't ignore the loving warnings. Please recognise that God doesn't smile at you and say, ha, yeah, I know you've been ignoring him, I just get a little nudge, a bit of a wink, everything's fine, you'll be okay, you know. He sees it all. He sees the outward and he sees the inward. He knows what the reality is of your heart and mind. As we see here, God's justice demands that you will be paid back for every sin that you have ever committed. These are not just kind of small steps you know, over the line of right and wrong. You know, you've not just gone 35 and a 30, you know, like as you do in your car sometimes. Ooh, that's a bit risky. No. You've stepped over the line of God's infinite and holy standard. And therefore you deserve an eternal retribution. Now please don't panic. But to know how good that the news is, that is to come, we first must realise what we actually deserve and what we are rightly and justly facing. But let's be clear, hear the warning, because God's justice applies to all, but by the grace of God. Now the second application of God's justice, it gets better from this point on, so we can breathe now, uh, we're okay, let's move on. This is good, it's good news. God's justice vindicates his people. We see that point too here, much quicker. See, wonderfully amidst all this kind of judgment, this fair, retributive justice, there's blessing. Look at verse 6 and 7. We see what's called the remnant. The remnant are the faithful that are kind of left over. The few that have been spared because of their uh, trust in God. They've been spared the right judgment. And we see their fortunes being restored. If you want to summarise uh, this particular kind of theme that runs through, it, it's poetic justice. It's wonderful. The people who were once plundered and robbed of their land, what happens? They're restored. Their, their animals find pasture that was once taken from them. We know the Philistines, they're always trying to grab the land. So now the land goes back to God's people. The descendants, the descendants of Lot who mocked Israel, are mocked as God turns. We see Moab and Ammon, their land into land like Sodom and Gomorrah, from where, ironically, they had once been rescued. Do you see the poetic justice? Cush and Assyria, those great, massive superpowers of the north and the south, famed for their military might, Go and see the Assyrian section in the British Museum and you'll see what they're famed for. How do they? How do they die? Under the same sword that they prided themselves in. 
In each place, God's judgment comes, and in each place we see a vindication in and through his power. A vindication of God's promises, and a vindication of his people as well. The faithful remnant. This is why I called this talk, The Remnant Strikes Back. Now, you have to kind of forgive me slightly, because I wrote that talk title amidst the kind of the, the launch of the Star Wars film. So I was slightly in Star Wars mode. It's a rubbish, rubbish talk title. I'd just like to say that. Because really, it's not the remnant that strikes back. The remnant are restored. They're vindicated. It's God who strikes back. In his judgment. He does so for the sake of his name. To keep his promises. To bless his people. The might of the most fearsome empires, north and south. No match. No match. Vindication comes. And let's be clear once again. It did. It did come. And one day it will come again to vindicate his people. So because of what Jesus Christ has done, all the mocking you see, all the scorn, all the persecution that Christian brothers and sisters are facing all around the world right now and through the ages, one day that will be vindicated. They will be proved right on that final day, the day of the Lord. And this is part of the, the, the Christian hope, really, that we will one day be vindicated. It ought to liberate us now to live in a way that is joyful, with the hope that we have that whatever is said to us, that will be proved right in the end. That Christ did die for our sins, that he did rise again. We're to respond in humble confidence, making Jesus known at every opportunity. Having him not as a private matter of our lives, but as our public Lord, our public Saviour. Because whatever they say to you, whatever they do to you, one day you will be proved right. Vindication will come. I know this is difficult because vindicating hope is not necessarily the default of our lives. Some of us struggle with all sorts of things, whether that's guilt or depression or loneliness and a whole myriad of other things. But even in that, even in our low points, cultivate hope as you recall that God's judgment will one day vindicate his faithful remnant. The last application of God's judgment, just in these last few minutes, God's justice redeems sinners. God's justice redeems sinners. It, it's right there at the centre of the passage, beautifully. Look at verse 11 with me if you can. God declares the nations will worship him in their lands. Look at verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations now will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. The word destroy here could also mean starve. And that's really important. So if you know anything about the gods of the other nations... What you had to do is you had to sacrifice food uh, and give food in order to kind of please them, to sa you know, satisfy their appetites. And uh, if you did that in your worship of those kind of demigods, well, you would hope that they would, they would then do nice things for you, like make it rain, make you prosper and so on. The problem was that all the nations knew the reality. The gods were always hungry. Their appetites, more like their priest's appetites, 
were utterly insatiable. And people created gods and the nations were enslaved to the appetites of their gods because of their insecurity. They wanted it to raise and just gave more and more and more food. But the gods were insatiable. So Zephaniah now comes along and shows that God in his awesome judgment will starve them. Starve the nation of their gods. And the result in verse 10, the nations will be set free from their gods to worship the one true and living God. There's not a more powerful image of justice, I don't think, in this whole passage than that of the slave being set free. Of being able now, free to worship the true and living God. And that is what God is doing here in his justice. In his judgment, he crushes those, starves them, essentially. And sets the prisoner free. Now we may now have wooden statues that people kind of walk along the road and go and bow down to. That's not what we see now. But I don't think we have any less idols around today. There are gods that are people, people we know are equally enslaved to. Their jobs, their wealth, their clothes. Well, you know. You see, the redemptive justice of God is no less needed today. Which is exactly, I guess, why as a church we're committed to taking the redemptive justice of God to the nations, including here. Because one privilege we have, I guess, of being in London is the world is here. The world comes to London. And so we must make the redemptive justice of God known to all. But how did God ultimately accomplish what he states in verse 11 here? Of course, it was ultimately fulfilled as Jesus died on a cross. And of course, at the world at that moment, like all the nations surrounding Judah, were mocking and they were berating the people and God and saying, oh, it just looks like weakness. That's nothing. They scorned. But the historical evidence that we'll look at next weekend and celebrate next weekend, the testament of the eyewitnesses, tells a very different story. That is the true story that the Lord of glory triumphs so that we might triumph. So that we might be set free from the enslaving idols of today and ultimately set free from sin and death itself. Let me wrap things up, if I may, very quickly. I think first and foremost we... We very importantly need to understand that God in his justice comes and it is retributive. There is a punishment. There's no slap on the wrist and counselling course available. He will punish if we are arrogant and stubborn before him. But wonderfully to the faithful, the remnant here, those who succumb themselves to the power and the grace of God, what do we see? They'll be vindicated and they will be redeemed, ultimately through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian here today, please remember and rejoice knowing what price was paid for you to be redeemed. Consider the idols that you are tempted to play with this week and reject them. Turn your back on them. 
Don't go back to that kind of slavery. Enjoy the freedom that Jesus has brought you. Enjoy Christ and offer your life to him. If you're, not a, if you're here today and you would consider yourself you're not a Christian, I hope you're feeling welcome. I know this is a really big passage. Please do join us again. But for today, consider for a moment, if you could, what idol are you feeding with your life? You know, who do you serve like a slave? It could be a whole bunch of things, whether it's sex or money or power, reputation or family. Do you get the idea? No matter how much you feed that idol, it will never be enough. If you're trying to get the biggest bank balance and it's trying to grow, do you realise you'll never, ever have enough? If that's what you're inside you, you'll never get enough. The sex will never be enough if that's what you're enslaved to. Do you know why? Because the gods of this world are never, ever satisfied until they utterly consume you. So please turn to God before it's too late. I say that simply because this judgment that we read of here points to a final judgment. The, the judgment that we see on the cross wasn't the last act of God's judgment, it's the penultimate act of God's judgment. Now, of course, God judged his son on the cross, Jesus, to take, if you like, the punishment, the retributive justice that I deserve for my rebellion against God because I put my trust in Jesus. And that is true for many of us here. We're the recipients of God's grace. The justice that I deserve has been placed on his son. But we trust in him because the other option is awesome and awful. The cross was the penultimate act of God's judgment. But a day is coming when the ultimate and final judgment is coming. And you'd be a fool to bet against it. Rather repent. Turn to Jesus for the freedom that he offers in his love and his grace. Let's pray as we close. Maybe just a moment of quiet. I know these have been quite sobering words in many ways. But for some of us, we ought to just be rejoicing as we've trusted in the Lord Jesus. Let's have a moment of quiet to pray and thank God for him.